everybody. Welcome to this episode of We All Gotta Eat, a podcast where we have conversations about food systems, social justice, culture, and health. My name is Allison. I'm here with my two co-hosts, Adante. Hey, what's good, y'all? And Chris. Hello, hello. So really excited today to get started. Um, before we get to the grocery bag and we'll cover today's topics, so in today's episode, we're shifting gears and getting into some global issues a little bit. I had the privilege last this past week to be in Washington, D.C. for the Global Food Security Symposium put on by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. They host this every year. Their entire mandate is that they're bringing in all these different names and practitioners from farmers and agriculturalists in South Sudan to USDA officials here in the U.S. So really excited to talk a bit about that and especially excited to talk about our two guests that we have from the the Food Security Symposium. So today you'll be hearing from Roger Thuro, who's the Senior Fellow on Global Food and Agriculture at the Chicago Council. And Roger, if you haven't heard of him, he's been involved in the fields of global food security and, and undernutrition, nutrition more generally, for many years. He worked with the Wall Street Journal as a as a reporter for I think 20, 20, 30 years. Wow. And he was there while they were he covered the rise and fall of apartheid. He covered Cold War era. So he, he's really been around the world and covered different things. And in, in most recent years, he's shifted his focus to food and food security. And he's authored and co-authored what he calls uh, the Real Hunger Games trilogy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the most recent of which is called The First Thousand Days, A Crucial Time for Mothers and Children and the World. So really excited to have Roger as a guest and I'm uh, excited to hear this. He sounds like a very well-traveled absolutely. renaissance man. And so. such great speaker, great order. And uh, we should say, insanely kind enough to lend us his Zoom microphone so that we can do these interviews at the symposium. So <laughs> Yeah, getting a taste of what real podcast production looks like. <laughs> absolutely. And also because of the time travel nature of podcasts, Chris was there last week. But for you listeners, this will be two weeks ago. This will be two weeks ago, yes. And I'm so excited to get that going. But before we dive into that, why don't we get the grocery bag going? Yeah, Dante, you want to start? Sure. Let's uh, rustle that bag and get a topic out. First topic, federal subsidies of fruits and vegetables. This is actually mine. I saw you looking at Alice and you thought it was hers. <laughs> no, this is, um, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I guess who is one of the co-authors on this? Our um, good friend. Is it, D, is it is he a dean? <laughs> Our good friend. Is he a dean or have <laughs> we knighted him? <laughs> <laughs> Not that we haven't knighted him, but he is a dean. Darius Mozafari. And at this point, you should just be... Our next guest, I feel like <laughs> <laughs> all this, <laughs> and it's, this one is actually pure coincidence. But uh, he, along with some other colleagues at Tufts and elsewhere, co-authored, and this came out actually. This was published six days ago. But basically, I thought it was really oh, fascinating. For your listeners out there, thirteen days ago. <laughs> <laughs> and this, uh, the study is simply, they ran a simulation in the U.S. of what two different scenarios would look like. The first scenario in which you implement a 30% subsidy on fruits and vegetables, and the second scenario in which you implement 30% subsidy on, in general, healthy food. So that includes things like whole grains, nuts, seeds, seafood, those sort of things. Obviously, a million and one questions around the methods and (laughs) how do you simulate reality and how do you incorporate all the different social... Do you know what data set they used? Oh, and Haynes. And Haynes, okay. I'm I'm curious because our research Health group is going to be using survey. household purchase data to do something really similar. So I'd be really interested in comparing, like when we get our analysis done, how it compares. Anyway, continue. Yeah, no, um, I'd be interested to hear what you think about these methods because this is not my background. But uh, I'll skip to the findings because that is something I can <laughs> read and understand. But they basically show that in implementing either of these subsidies not only are they both cost effective which is for a lot of people the first question but do you mean cost effective in terms of net the, benefit the net benefit because of improved Av- health and less avoided disease medical costs line. okay mm-hmm. and so it was estimated to prevent 1.9 million cvd cardiovascular disease events save 39.7 billion dollars billion dollars in formal health care costs so that's just the scale of what we're talking mm-hmm. about here uh, and that was the only 30% on fruits and vegetables. The other larger subsidy scenario, that was a net gain of $100.2 billion in formal health care costs. So I had never thought about that as, a, as an option. And I wanted to see, had you, had you all ever heard of that? The, the use of subsidies on fruits and, fruits and vegetables as a way to 
increase them? Is that? Yeah. So our research group is looking at doing this with household as modeling this with household purchase data. So on the one hand, what would the effect of a tax be in terms of the health um, implications down the line? So how many disease events would you prevent? Like how many cases of obesity, how many heart attacks, that kind of thing. And then, but then also looking at the effects of subsidies and then, you know, scenarios where maybe you combine the two. Um, it's tricky. So NHANES data for the listeners is uh, is data where you basically tell somebody in an interview everything that you ate in the last 24 hours. Um, and it's, an, it's a survey that they conduct every, that they're conducting all the time, but they release the data every two years. And it's a sample of people that represents the entire population of the United States. So by using that data set there, um, looking at the, I guess, rel- like preferences of people, like people who typically consume some kinds of foods also consume other kinds of foods and how that kind of plays into um, if you were to make fruits and vegetables less expensive, who are the people estimating who the people were where consumption would increase. And NHANES is really um, good data because it's also your health outcomes are also measured. So after you do your interview where you talk about all the food you ate, then you go and get your blood pressure taken and different um, other measures. The tricky part about that data set, though, is that they don't—you don't know how much the food costs that a person ate. Whereas with the data set that we're using, you know how much the food costs. You know how much someone paid for it. So I'd be so I'm interested to read the paper further to kind of, to dig into those methods. But but they're really but just in general those so these kinds of studies are simulations, right? You don't have a bunch of people going into a supermarket and you're not giving them these vouchers to buy less expensive produce but simulation research is still really important in kind of setting parameters on what could be possible if we were to try out different things um, because until you do a couple of studies for the first time or until you have a, a, a county or a state or something that that tries it um, you don't have any real data so you have to rely on these kinds of simulations to push the conversation forward and create a scenario where you do have some state that wants to try it out hmm. yeah all of what allison said <laughs> <laughs> no um I, I think about subsidies on foods in the u.s and how it's typically around meat and beef and those things that yeah and and, and for the when we say subsidies on those things it's because the government has invested a lot in the infrastructure to produce those things to transport those things so those industries are subsidized, whereas fruit and vegetables, besides corn and soybeans, right, are other all other produce is kind of it doesn't have that same investment in infrastructure. Yeah, so I think about those types of subsidies and their quote unquote effectiveness and how effective would a fruit and vegetable subsidy? What would that? I guess practically, what would that look like for right. some communities? Right. I think about, I mean, the produce prescription programs; those are in effect kind of subsidizing the cost of fruit and vegetables for. Everyday people. Mm-hmm. I want my doctor to write me a prescription to go eat more vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the findings of these studies on produce prescription programs are, but I would like to think that they're um, they're leading to an increase in fruit and vegetable consumption and overall health benefits. And I think the this getting at is just I guess the decrease in healthcare expenses and just the amount of money we this country would save in healthcare spending if people were getting more fruits and vegetables. So I'm interested to see, A, if this gets implemented in real life versus simulations, and B, you know, what some of the preliminary findings would be. And I should also say, I should have led with this, this is specifically among adults within the Medicare, Medicaid system. Mm. Um, so, oh, okay. So yeah. all of those savings, that's not even applying right. this to the entire population right. because we don't eat enough Fruits and vegetables. If you look at the top sources of vegetables in this country, like top 10 sources of of foods, pizza makes the top 10 because of that, because of tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say, what was it, like 12% of Americans eat their recommended amount of uh, vegetables or fruit? And I think it was like 6 or 9% eat the recommended amount of vegetables. Mm -hmm. And cost is a big part of that. Yeah. And I feel like theoretically, because we're looking at Medicare, Medicaid populations, these are more vulnerable as as a function of age and income, especially. So I can imagine that bang for buck is there in a program like this and such that you would see these really high savings benefits. But even then, 
it gets me to think, are, is there impetus for doing this improved health? Or are they simply looking at cost savings or both? Mm-hmm. I mean, if it can improve health and be a net savings, that's the I guess that's where rainbow. the cost savings a... would come from. Yeah, I mean, but I guess like what's their drive? It's like they want to see people healthier or is it, oh, we want to. <laughs> but you know, money talks in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any, there are lots of. Because like, why wouldn't they, why wouldn't they do this earlier? Like. Years, decades by ago. that logic, then there's so <laughs> many things we should have done and not done because it was quote unquote right. Mm-hmm. But if it makes money, it makes sense. I do wonder about the food access question. Also, it, I mean, if you give me a, a subsidy on fruits right. and vegetables, right. and I can't go out anywhere and buy fruits yeah. and vegetables, then what is that? We'll point the listeners here to episode two. two, in which we talked about some of that the issues around dollar stores popping up, phasing out supermarkets, and yeah. those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Should we dive into the next one? Yes. Chris, go for it. Let's do it. Costa Rican sales tax on food. Yeah. Okay. I was hoping this would come up next because this is tied. This ties in really well to yours, which is a good illustration of how food issues are. These aren't just issues in the U.S. Yeah. So so this story comes out of Costa Rica and a recent change to their Canasta Básica Tributaria, which is a, the, a basket of basic goods and services that are taxed at a lower rate than other goods and services. So um, so the food, the goods and services in this basket get a sales tax basically of 1% instead of 13% like other goods and services. And the way that they decide what goes into this basket, it's the, the goal of the basket or of this policy is to make these purchases to more equitable and more affordable for people in the lowest 20% of the income scale of the income spectrum in the country. Which I thought was a really interesting idea. So they, the criteria that they use to choose these items, first they look at what current consumption patterns are of households that are in the bottom 20%. Then they look at goods and services that are considered essential for a low-income population. And then they just look at kind of overall expenditure patterns in the entire population, how they're changing over time. But there's a lot of controversy around this from a nutrition perspective because nowhere in those criteria are nutrition guidelines outlined. And so what it's resulted in is that the new taxes, or the, the new items in the this recent iteration of the basket are excluding a lot of fruits and vegetables and healthy foods. So things that they're excluding are whole grains, chickpeas. They're excluding your chickpeas. Unacceptable. Tuna, Throw the whole tax away. Celery, broccoli, uh, zucchini. And the reason is because low-income households are not buying these foods. So why aren't they buying these foods? So you have to ask, right, Right, why aren't aren't they buying these foods? And so in Costa Rica, it's similar to to here, although not to the same extent, but people aren't eating enough fruits and vegetables. So these policies are kind of, the, the controversy is that these policies are going to be moving consumption in an increasingly unhealthy direction. Because these, so these healthier foods are going to be more expensive. And then if they're not consumed, there's less incentive that they would be produced in the first place. Some of the food, the fruits and vegetables that are excluded um, are also very culturally specific to Costa Rica. So there's this other argument that not only are you having this effect on consumption and production, but you're also making it harder to consume these healthy foods that are, that have this additional cultural relevance. And I thought this was really, this was really interesting because it reminds me of a lot of conversations we have here about like a soda tax. Is it regressive because it, it because low income populations tend to consume more soda, but does that make it a bad thing? So I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. You know, that's really interesting. And I think it's uh, it sounds like on one hand, I get it because if it's not consumed, you want the money to go where the money will be used. On the yeah, other so hand, it's, making... it's what about what should happen, not what is happening. Right. Those are two opposite sides of a very important coin, and I don't know that solution. That solution might make it better now. Might quote unquote, you know, it might get you votes now because people will see a benefit now. Yeah, it but... will. It will actually reduce the cost of exactly like, the things that they're using that, exactly. that people are currently buying. But are they currently buying things? Because yeah, like if they had more money, would they be buying different right. things? Well, I wonder what, I guess, with these common foods, you know, them getting this discount, this word discount, 
Yeah, subsidy. The, yeah. The yeah, subsidy on the these different sales tax. Basically. Yeah, these different like with this lower sales tax on these common foods. What would the projected health look like from being on a diet consisting of primarily these foods for like the next like fifty years, a hundred years? Is there a way to I guess simulate what that would look like? The team at Tufts to do a simulation <laughs> for us. <laughs> or to your question, also, is it rice more rice and beans, or is it more cooking oil and potatoes? So, uh, Rice and I mean? beans are definitely still covered. One of the foods that's no longer covered is whole grain, whole grain rice, brown rice. What? <laughs> yeah, no chickpeas, no brown rice. So less fiber. I mean, I don't have a. I don't. I'm not sure what the list is of foods that are still in the basket. But a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables are being excluded now. It, it, that's a tough. Because then so many questions are come up. Has the cost of fruits and vegetables gone up in recent years? Have family sizes gone up? Or basically all the questions that make you wonder, is it for, is there's clearly a reason this happened. Is changing this going to impede on the good that that decision, that this lower tax would is bringing to these families? What I'm trying to say is, even if we said, wow, no, those fruits and vegetables need that lower tax, who do the family, do, do the families who are buying the food, do they think so? And then, how strongly does it? Yeah, I, I'm stuck yeah, on the spiral. I would be interested in the, the qualitative spiral. piece of this, like right. interviewing low-income families. Yeah. So what do you guys want more money for? I also want to know, like, these foods that are being taxed or have a lower tax on, are they being produced in that country? Right. Are, are those subsidies going towards the people who grow that in Costa Rica? I just want to see who all is benefiting from it or who all is supposed to benefit from it. Yeah, yeah who, who produces the food that... A lot of the foods that, like, celery and broccoli and zucchini and strawberries are grown you can grow grow those in costa rica and there were some examples of like specific fruits that you don't that are tropical fruits that you don't get here so it's kind of the opposite direction of the study that we just talked about with subsidizing fruits and vegetables they should collaborate (laughs) (laughs) right they should consult the Tufts team. And hire us as a team of personal consultants. <laughs> as a side note, so this this basket includes things that are, it's a little broader than just foods. Uh, but I didn't know that when I first started reading about this because I was reading about the nutritionist angle on this. Um, and I was looking at the, the 14 items that are now included in the basket that weren't before. And most of them are still foods. But one of them is a copa menstrual, and which is a, a menstrual cup. And at first I read it and I was like, wait, is there some fruit or vegetable that is that translates to a menstrual cup that I never <laughs> picked up on while I lived in I was there for two years. I lived there for two years and I didn't see this. Um, no, it just turns out it's not only food that's in this. <laughs> oh, so what else is on that list that's not food? Well, the menstrual cup, hence the, the story she just told about <laughs> menstrual cups. I think it's that and like... Um, light bulbs i think were something that's included now in the basket that wasn't before but like like i said i only know about the things that change not the things that are still in the core of the basket that haven't changed but so it will make things less expensive for low-income households but you know i, I would be really interested to see what yeah. a low, what the majority of low-income households think all right and with that our last grocery bag topic is quote unquote vegan lifestyle blogger in trouble after being caught eating fish is the backlash from her followers warranted, or do they need to chill? Um, <laughs> where was the quote? <laughs> quote unquote, quote unquote vegan. Well, quote unquote vegan because if she oh, okay, fish, okay, okay. No, I just didn't know. I, okay, got it, got it. Yeah, so I came across this article over the weekend, and it was about this woman. Uh, her name is Yovana Mendoza Ayers, who goes by the uh, moniker Ravana. She's a of course lifestyle blogger, <laughs> fitness lifestyle blogger who has like millions of followers on Instagram and her website. And, you know, she claims to be vegan and does like these 21 day vegan cleanses, these detoxes. And she's built this like brand of wellness. And recently she was photographed. Well, she's actually video, like I guess on, she was on somebody's live at a restaurant, her friends and she being like live recording on the social media. Yeah. 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 And she was eating, like, she was seeing, like, eating fish. Oh, so it's not like she was, like, hiding in a corner, sneaking into her fish. And no, she was eating fish, but then, like, when she realized she was on camera, she tried to, like, hide her plate. Or, like, you see all this in the video. Hide. <laughs> yeah. And so when that got out, I mean, the some of these vegan communities, they, like, were just 
irate about what happened. You know, the fact that she was promoting this lifestyle and everything. And then for her to be eating fish <laughs> and, you know, her like entire like empire is like started to crumble at this moment. And, you know, after after the news broke out, she actually released a, I think, 30 minute video on YouTube explaining, wow. you know, everything that happened. And and it was called what was the video called? Can I just take a quick pause and say, I would love to have been the fly in the wall, Dante in his bed, you know, PJs, 9 p.m., following the story, watching the Facebook Live video, bag of Doritos on the side, <laughs> just riveted. I would have loved to see that. I, well, actually, I, saw this, I saw this on on Saturday. I was actually Great, in so the Saturday library. night in his bed. I was, I, was, I was in the library on Saturday, and I came across this article. What happens to fellow sometimes vegans? Right? <laughs> but... But the thing is, she released a video and it was called, uh, this is what is happening. I said it was 30 minutes long <laughs> and she explained what happened. You know, she was doing this lifestyle thing for six, seven years and she, her health started to decline and she didn't know what was going on. She was having trouble with her menstrual cycle. It wasn't happening as frequently as it should. And she didn't know what was going on. So she was changing up her diet, starting to include animal products, starting to include eggs and, and meat and dairy mm-hmm. to, you know, try to improve her health. But at the same time, when this was happening, she did not communicate that to her followers. And so when she was caught on video eating fish, people were like, oh, what the heck? Like, I thought you were vegan. And so she's getting a lot of backlash. So it's I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted about it. One, I'm glad that she's OK. But at the same time, she has these followers and she's selling these 21 day detoxes and cleanses for on her website. It's things like 70 bucks for this program so she's been making a lot of money off of posing to be a vegan and she's not but on the other hand she cares about her health she wanted to like get better and she ate she did a less of a plant-based lifestyle so she can improve her health so it's like i I get where she's coming from but at the same time you can't claim to be part of this community and reap the benefits of it and not be transparent with your followers i guess yeah it feels it feels exploitive to me that she was exploited. I mean, she's, I mean, she, some of the comments, like she put up a video of her making this like Mexican sweet potato and like people put like fish emojis in the comments and like they've been trolling her hard. And, like, <laughs> you see why I want to be the flying people, the He went through her social media to find the, actually it was, it was a news report that, <laughs> that had the Instagram post. You like it. drama. I see it. And I know this. people are posting like, oh, <laughs> she is a fake vegan, no longer a friend. Like people are you know, roasting think, this girl on that, social media. I think the community being so religious about it is a little over it. It's too much. But having said that, if she was going through this health journey, I think that's important to for her to have communicated with with this community of people that really are looking to her for for good information, for good nutrition and lifestyle information. Because if she's having these uh, like legitimate health effects about this diet. I just feel like she should be transparent about it. Like, hey, guys, I'm mostly still plant-based, but because of these health reasons, um, I'm incorporating more animal products. If you notice that your health is also declining, like, veganism might not might just not be for you. I don't if- know. I, I feel quite unbothered by her fish eating. I think she could have said something, but to me it's different than, for example, all the stuff with Ariana Grande and how she is a white woman but Italian, a white woman, but dons the the veil, and you know she the swag of a person of color. <laughs> I like the way, yeah, and and then and the benefits from it, and 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 leans into it in a lot of different ways. That that's different to me because it's it's not it's, there's something to exploit there, but exploiting a vegan community. I guess maybe because I'm not vegan. I apologize to any vegans who may identify strongly with their community, but I don't know what is there to exploit there. There's no ethnic or cultural ties to, to to veganism for most people in the U.S., right? She's just presenting herself as something that is no longer right. true. Yeah. And, you is. know, for me, like, this is why I started to distance myself from the vegan label that I felt like I was kind of getting into. Because for a while, I, you know, was doing a plant-based diet, advocating plant-based diets, and I still do. And I was eating, Are you, you vegetarian know, now? Look, I eat mostly plants. <laughs> the Michael Pollan. Today specifically? Yeah, no, I was teasing because I know today for a fact you had chicken and beef. So I was just teasing. Look, I was just, it was just a little taste of the kibbeh. <laughs> I was teasing. I was teasing. But no, like I you know, was doing a plant-based diet for a while and I felt great. But over time, I started to add animal products back right. in. Not going overboard, mm-hmm. but just realizing that, look, 
there's I I believe from a health standpoint, it's the best way to eat. I believe it's associated with lower rates of cardiovascular disease, right. cancer, diabetes, all these other things. But at the same time, I, I believe that, you know, people have the choice to eat whatever they want. If it's meat, if it's de- whatever it is. And so I don't want to be that person to, like, deny that from somebody. And, you know, yeah, every once in a while I'll have, you know, some chicken now and then. But I, I don't want to be labeled as the vegan this, the vegan that. Like, mm-hmm. much much respect to the vegan community out there. And it's on veganism. It's on the spectrum. You have a people mm-hmm. who, True. you know, they mostly plant-based, maybe a few things here and other things here and there. But you have some who are, like, raw vegan militant vegans who right. was like you know the people who are coming after ravana was just like yeah. you know you're not real like you're you're a phony and everything and that's the thing that turns people off of the vegan community too like people hear the word vegan they right. all, sometimes some of them hear it's like they crossfit think, in my mind yeah some of them think when you hear the word vegan it's <laughs> Sorry, like Allison, oh i know you do crossfit now they're type of they're type of this type of person who's just gonna, gonna judge you right. look at your plate and say oh what are you eating and you know i don't i don't want to be associated with that and i don't think veganism should be associated with that either and so I guess my last thing for the story is, you know, this woman, she is a social media influencer or wellness influencer, but she's she's not a health professional. She's not a registered dietitian and people are following her for advice. So my advice to you is to go seek out a registered dietitian and that's someone who is <laughs> seek out a Dante specifically. <laughs> <and> a registered <laughs> <to> dietitian. <laughs> but you know, find someone who has been trained and knows the relationship between diet and health and can give you individualized nutrition advice as opposed to this person who maintains a social media following and like does these these plans and trends or whatever i guess because of people who really are promoting trends you can have nutrition knowledge and i mean chris and i feel like have a good handle on nutrition even though we're not rds but still like seeking out a, a variety of perspectives, making sure that you're really considering the evidence. And if you have, especially if you have some like specific condition, like you have diabetes in your family, I agree. Seeking out a registered dietitian, right. if you have access to health insurance, um, is is worth the is definitely worth the investment um, because the person will at least point you to good resources and listening to yourself, right? Yeah. If you're trying veganism and you for a couple of years and then you find that it's not working for your health. That's what bothers me most about this is that she she is supposed to be a wellness influencer, like mm-hmm. you said. And there's a certain kind of responsibility that I would hope would come with something like that. You just got to listen to your body, really. That's the first line. This is good a note of any, I think, to <laughs> transition to our interview with Dante, leaving us on an uplifting and knowledge-inspiring note here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> cool so we'll play that interview and then we'll return here and share some of our concluding thoughts i'm really excited to have here roger thoreau senior fellow for global food and agriculture for the, the charles council on global affairs. affairs roger has been in the field of global food and agriculture in so many different facets of capacities from journalism to practice for, for, for so long. I won't dilute what you've done in a summary of what you've done. So maybe it would be nice if you can give us a, a, your own elevator pitch on your vast experience over the past, what, 30 some odd years? 30 years. Yeah. More. So, yeah, delighted to be with you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for including me. I was a reporter with the Wall Street Journal for 30 years, 20 as a foreign correspondent, which then launched me into traveling around the world. And then particularly eventually getting me into uh, humanitarian and development issues from the time we were based in South Africa, from 86 to 91. So the period of the last gas brutal years of apartheid, the increasing opposition, increasing repression uh, by the white government, Mandela's release uh, from prison. And then kind of another year after, so with Mandela on the the national and international uh, scene, the efforts then for a new... South Africa. So the time in South Africa and then the travels in Africa, throughout Africa, in particular the frontline states and how they were in, impacted by apartheid, was then really getting me into these uh, the humanitarian right. and development right. issues. And I really got into hunger and malnutrition then particularly in 2003. It was the Ethiopian famine of 2003. 14 million people were on the doorstep of starvation. 
being kept alive if, if they were going to survive at all by the international food aid that was rushing into the country. It was the first great hunger crisis of the 21st century, of this grand new millennium of ours. We're three years into the right. 21st century, and this hunger crisis explodes. And so in my mind, so I went to Ethiopia, but it was how we had brought hunger and malnutrition with us into the 21st century and the absurdity and obscenity that we had brought this medieval suffering with us right. into this new millennium. Um, so I went down to Ethiopia to report on that for the Wall Street Journal. My first day in Addis was meeting with folks from the World Food Program because right. they were distributing food. The next day we're going to be traveling together to the, some of the hunger zones. And one of the people at the World Food Program said to me, looking into the eyes of someone dying of hunger becomes a disease of the soul. Because what you see is that mm-hmm. nobody should have to die of hunger, particularly not now. Mm-hmm. Like disease of the soul. Right. What's this guy talking about? You know, you're taking a malaria you right. know, medication. You're like, oh, checking for the news on any cholera things. Ethiopia's part of the meningitis uh, belt. You're always, you know, doing things for, for kind of like ward off physical right. ailments or prevent them. This guy's talking about the disease of the soul. What's that about? And that, so then the next day we were traveling, and, and then for the first time, as we went into the emergency feeding tents that were set up in some of the villages in parts of Ethiopia, that's where I then first looked into the eyes of people dying of hunger, and right. children, adults, and I'm ashamed to say that, I mean, for all my previous time as foreign correspondent, my time in Africa, I hadn't really done that or looked into the eyes of the, the hungry and the starving. And that did indeed become a disease of my soul, so much so that as a foreign correspondent, you go from place to place and country to country and story to story. What's next? Yeah. Where am I going next? That story stopped me cold. That then became the story. It was it was this kind of this moment of disruption, yeah. or a positive disruption, pivotal moment in my life, yeah. in my career, in in in, in, in agriculture development, in, in 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 development issues, kind of globally for the world that was looking in on that, uh, and involved. But for me personally, as a journalist, that became the story that I couldn't move on from. I right. needed to keep coming back and coming back and coming back. So eventually, this disease soul of mine led me then from the Wall Street Journal to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs so I could write books mm-hmm. on this issue and spend time and, 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 and months or years Specifically following, following people. Yeah. Right. So right. The, the Farmers in the Last Hunger Season, that is my second book, right, where I followed four smallholder farmers and their families through a year as they descend into the hunger season and then as they come out. And what happens in their lives when the essential elements of farming, proper seeds, right? right. Not, not not GMOs, but just but better quality seeds for their elevation, for their soil conditions, for their climate, to have that for the first time. Microdosing levels of fertilizer, extension advice, uh, storage advice, marketing advice, the financing to pay right. for it all. As that comes into their lives for the first time to see how they for then for the first time have surpluses from what they're farming and what that means for them. So as they come out of the hunger season, and that was a matter of then following these farmers through a year. And then the last book, the most recent one, the first thousand days of following these families yeah. through the thousand day period in India, Uganda, Guatemala, and, and Chicago. I couldn't have done that while I was still at the Wall Street right. Journal to have that much intense time on, say, one story. So I, So that's kind of what then brought me to... To this stage and my interest in hunger, so it become it's become this compelling story yeah. that I want to cover, and to come back to it and back to it and back to it, and whenever any editors would say, ah, kind of another story that haven't we done that already? Yeah, what's new? I'd say what's new is it hasn't changed. <laughs> is that it's old? Yeah, that's the important thing that it still abides with us and we tolerate it. Right, you know all the the, the absurdity and obscenity that we still allow hunger and malnutrition in our uh, uh, in our midst. Yeah, someone can spend and has and will continue, uh, unfortunately, to spend many years on specifically this these issues around undernutrition from iron deficient anemia to stunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and as if that wasn't complex enough, you know, thinking about the issue of the dual burden of health. So you have mm-hmm. countries, especially now in Latin America more than right. ever, where you have these same age old issues. And then now on top of that, obesity, right. cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, how has that been incorporated in how you think about this and how you advocate for um, maybe a general fight against malnutrition? Yep. No, absolutely. So this double burden, uh, kind of these, these emerging you know, other tracks. And there's, there's been a number of, of reports and things, yeah. Global Nutrition Report, mm-hmm. really bringing attention. There is no country in the world, no matter how rich, that does not have a malnutrition problem because right. obesity... Is a, is is a problem of malnutrition. malnutrition. Right. 
So when you think about that, it's like more than half more than half the people on our planet are malnourished in some sense. They're chronically hungry, mm-hmm. they're micronutrient deficient, or they're overweight and obese. Right. And it's more than you add it all together. It's more than half of our population on our planet. It's like what's what's wrong with us? What kind of madness continues to drive this? Because we can solve this. I mean, it's not it's not you know kind of a mystery or something yet that we have to discover but so and a revelation so in the in the last hunger season so the second book of the farm families that i was following one of the moms had said that the 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 deepest form of misery in this profound period of deprivation the hunger season right where the food from their previous harvest is gone they've consumed it they've sold it for school fees for medicine for whatever purpose food from the previous harvest is is gone and wait for the next harvest to come in that period in between is then the hunger season. Yeah, yeah. For this family, in the course that I was following through the course of the year, it stretched on for about nine months or longer. You could physically see the the, the, the parents and the children like shrink as they're going through that because food is rationed, meals are meals are, are you know diminished three to two to one a day, sometimes not much of anything during the day. Right. And she said, so we were talking about it, at like like just kind of the depth of that. And she said this, from her, I learned that the deepest form of misery in the hunger season is to be a mother, to be a father, to be a parent, unable to silence the crying of a hungry child and how awful that is. And her children were malnourished, particularly a little one who was like two or three years old. Then I started thinking, well, what impact is there of that, of childhood malnutrition? So that's why then, so I finished that book, and then as I'm finishing that, then comes this kind of rising movement or discussion around the first thousand days. So yeah. from the time when a mom becomes pregnant to the second birthday of a child. And the importance of nutrition in that period, both for the individual child, but for society as a whole, because it's a matter of what kind of start in life do our children get off to. Right. But then it's, that then so sets into motion their life. So the physical growth, the cognitive development, yeah. immune systems, everything you're talking about now with chronic diseases yeah. later in life that are now appearing more frequently in some places. And by extension, then, it's the most important period of, of the development of, of, of families and communities and societies and countries and continents and the world as a whole. And so what are we missing when these children are stunted? And that one in every four children in the world today is stunted? So the clinical definition of stunting is too short for age. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean, right? How do you imagine that? What I figured and, and, and thought while following everybody through this thousand days, is that stunting is really this life sentence of underachievement and underperformance that in most cases is rendered by the time a child is two for coming out of the thousand right. day period. And that's then really been impactful for my thinking on this, my speaking on this, because when you tell people that there's one in four stunted children in the world, it's like, oh, yeah, well, what's that number? Well, that's too bad. Yeah. But when you say, here's the consequences of it, and how it affects all of us, because a stunted child any everywhere, a stunted child anywhere becomes a stunted child everywhere, right. because the impact washes through. Particularly when you think of of what what we're missing, what might a child have accomplished for all of us? Discovering a new cure, writing some brilliant piece of poetry or music, inventing something, some new gadget, a new app, whatever. Even on more mundane levels, being able to reap more harvest by being taller and stronger. Exactly, and therefore not only helping their family, but all of us on the global food chain because we're all connected. So the more successful they are as farmers, the more successful we all are. When you think of that, what might these children have accomplished for all of us, for themselves, for all of us, were they not stunted? That becomes a profound loss. And so I say that, 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 you know, a lost chance of greatness for one child becomes this lost chance for all of us because who knows what potential we're missing. And I think when people think about that, that kind of becomes more profound in any economic statistic or any other data point. It's like, oh man, what might we be losing? And we right. don't know. And it's one in every four stunted children become stunted adults. So they carry this throughout their lives. And so like any hunger crisis, the people who die is, is, is tragic and abhorrent. But the most pernicious impact of any kind of, of any hunger crisis of any, mal, of any malnutrition at any time in a person's life is on those that who survive because that is a lifelong impact that they carry. Perhaps being on the stunting, particularly the cognitive stunting, healthcare costs, yep. chronic diseases later in life, it's a burden for them, for the families, for all of us. Yeah. Right. And so that's this thing that we need to wrestle with and 
how we create this give a damn for us to finally get on top of this that mm-hmm. someday people are going to look back and say, how did you tolerate hunger and malnutrition and childhood for stunting so for so long into the 21st century yeah. with all these telecommunications possibilities at our fingertips and we're still allowing and tolerating this medieval suffering in our midst? It's like, what's wrong with us? Yeah. What, what madness grips us that we're still doing this? And I think that that I'm hoping makes it more understandable or approachable, which I figure is my job as a journalist, right? I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a seed breeder. I, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a practitioner, you know, a humanitarian who's in the field doing something, behavior change specialist and agriculture economist. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm a, I'm a journalist. So I can tell stories. So how do you get people to to engage in this, to motivate them? So as my, my mantra as a journalist is to outrage and inspire. Outrage. What if four children in the world are stunted with a life sentence of underachievement and underperformance? What? And then the inspire, we can end this, right? How do we create the give a damn? And, so, and, and that, that's exactly, it's, it's the perfect segue because it's, it's my next question, which is if you, as a journalist, this is, this is your marching order, these are your goals. If you can collectively grab global policymakers and practitioners by the hand and single-handedly enact a single action or advocate for a single global movement towards X. What right. would X be? In, in your mind, what, what is that singular most important thing? Yeah, I mean, generally kind of nutrition at the center of all development efforts, whether it's overseas somewhere or here, you know, in our country, in our communities, that nutrition is at the center of it. And two, I mean, then, then more specifically, look, everybody says, well, children are our future, right? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, that's an obvious statement. They are our future. <laughs> their children are going to become adults. They're going to run around the world, right. run in our country, run in their communities, and our businesses and organizations. And stuff. So, yes, children are our future. Then why do we not put a premium on ensuring that these children get off to the best start in life possible? You want to make America great again? Make America great? <laughs> Any country? Make sure the kids are getting off to the best start in life. All the nutrition programs right. that's possible for them. What what can we do for, for for moms when they're pregnant, for girls as teenagers as they're entering childbearing years? What is their nutritional status that will be then that, that will then be so important? All of this kind of then has to become like a top priority and, and front of of mind uh, for all the decision makers for everybody who's trying to raise a clamor on this. Uh, yeah, so if I could grab somebody by the collar and say, what are we doing? Invest in the first thousand days. That, that would be it. Yeah. Focus on the first thousand days. Focus on good nutrition. Ensure good nutrition. Do whatever you can for that. Because yes, indeed, the children are our future. And we need to ensure that they get off to the best start in life. And and for me, at least, I think nutrition is the cornerstone. Of the, and everything that supports it. So the water, the sanitation, the hygiene, the general infrastructure, the condition of healthcare systems. Right. Be it broader or, or in our own country. Poverty goes hand in hand with, with, yeah. with malnutrition. Whatever, whatever manner or means of, of, of uh, form of malnutrition. So poverty reduction efforts have to be, you know, kind of hand in hand with this too. But yeah, nutrition, That's, particularly yeah. in the first thousand days, make sure, our, make sure all our children get off to the best start in life because the loss of that opportunity is profound. Yeah. That's, that's great then. And then, so the, one of the last questions I'll ask is, um, a lot of our listeners are either students or young academics or recent PhD grads, recent young uh, faculty members, and so what is something after all this year, all these years, thirty years in global work, that um, could you see young Roger today? You'd say, "Hey, this thing that's driving you, and you think so strongly about, think less strongly about, or think this instead of that." What would this, right. that the thing be for you? Yeah, I think as a journalist, if I had had this this kind of disease of the soul, uh, that I would have been focusing on this issue more keenly from the beginning of hunger, yeah. malnutrition, right. kind of a more of awareness of that. I mean, when I was coming out of, out of college, I went, went to the University of Iowa, studying journalism, working at Daily Iowa, so a truly great college newspaper, yeah. and the, the morning paper for, for, for Iowa City, so really top-notch paper. Wow. Great experience for that. I wanted to be a sports writer, right? So really? I look back and it's like, what was that about, <laughs> right? <laughs> Given all I know now, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's part of your question. So given all I know given now, all you know now exactly. my advice would have been like, yeah, no, don't be a sports writing. Don't do that. So I could have prepared myself better in college right, and university by what I was studying, by what my interests were. And then it turns out the Wall Street Journal was a great 
place to land at because I then was, you know, we're not exactly a sports rag for the Wall Street <laughs> Wait, Journal. Really? <laughs> uh, we would do some sports stories, but kind of in a strange manner uh-huh. at times in terms of the, the, the sports lingo we could use. It's like, well, we can't assume that people know what that is. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I, what's the, a story where it's not a football team, it was the New Orleans Saints when they were so bad. And what I say is people were wearing brown paper bags over their heads and calling, them, uh, calling themselves the Aints uh-huh. because they were all in whatever. So we ain't, we ain't won yet. Oh, I grew up a Dolphins fan. I'm quite aware oh, of Right, that, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Archie Manning, quarterback, uh, he had been sacked by more more times than like everybody else combined <laughs> in the NFL or something like that. So I'm writing that in a story and my editor says, we can't use the word sack. I said, what do you mean we can't use the word sack? He says, ah, there might be people who read the story who, don't, who are just casual observers of football. They may know not what, what sacked is. <laughs> So, well, how are we going to define this? That, that he was he was he was pummeled before throwing the ball more than anybody else or something. So I said that's really awkward. So I'm thinking, yeah, no, one can't write sports uh, uh, properly. Although I did go on to cover a, a number of Olympics, but kind of right. from more from different perspective, yeah. but different the quirky side. It wouldn't yeah. care who won or lost uh, uh, in terms of the the writing, but it was like the, the business of the Olympics and kind of following the money yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, through things. So anyway, so it was like. Eh. Going to be a sports writer? No, don't, don't, you know, do that. Study these other things in college. Study, uh, uh, specialize in some place in the world. Do more with languages. That's a big one. Languages. Do oh, yeah. more. Right. Care more about. Do reporting about the people around you. Locally and globally. Locally That's, and globally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that would be a, a significant piece of my advice. That uh, yeah, to kind of wake up to these things earlier. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but who does that? Right. Right. And so yeah. it's only kind of in hindsight that's just like yeah, okay. Well, you're here now, and then uh, for our last course, these questions that we ask all mm-hmm. of our interviewees. Uh, the first question is, it's easy to, to get mired down in malnutrition and all of these different health concerns globally. So having acknowledged that, what still keeps you hopeful? Yeah, a, a great question. So I think what keeps me hopeful is like talking to, to people like you, to the other next gen, next generation uh, delegation at Chicago Council. Students. So last week I was at the University's Fighting World Hunger okay. uh, Summit, where there were like four or five hundred students, faculty from across disciplines. If you had, if you surveyed all of them, like what are you studying? What are your majors? It would have certainly been like certainly over a hundred different things, uh, majors and, and, and interests and minors and things like that. And when you think about that, of all them thinking, they're not egg specialists, they're not nutritionists. They're like, no, this is this is absurd or obscene. What kind of world are we living in? What kind of society am I living in? What kind of campus am I living in, living in that has this? So universities are starting to do their own research on campus Absolutely. hunger, campus food insecurity. 15, 20, 25, 40% of students on some campuses. Uh, it's not just isolated campuses. It's basically all of them. Uh, it's like, what? How can that be? So you just look around. At a, so that's the big point of optimism. All these students that are so fired up about this that are thinking about this already and also then i've i've just seen a proliferation at universities at colleges community colleges uh even uh and 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 thinking of the uh, people teaching this in high school through the ffa programs uh, and 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 other 4-h other egg programs the proliferation of hunger studies curriculum of food studies, food solutions, food systems courses and curriculum that's available, so that, so that more people are thinking about this, are getting into it, are getting into it, that are more prepared to go forth and and tackle this, and almost finding, in terms of creating the give a damn, <laughs> uh, people you know they're seeing kind of students leading leading the movement on climate change, right, and kind of the protests that are starting to gel. And form around that, a lot of them coming from students questioning why aren't we doing the same on hunger and stunting and malnutrition and how that's impacted by climate. How do we bring that into the climate change discussion, all the discussion of the planetary boundaries that we're facing? Do we need to include hunger and malnutrition and that too and how that all works together? So in a sense, this I hope that I'm assessing this properly, this increasing fervor. Yeah among particularly students that this is not the world that we want to live in. We're not going to abide hunger and malnutrition. 
in the world that we're going to be running 10, 20, 30 years from now. So I think that's room for optimism. That did. It makes me optimistic. To a sense. So, yeah. So I hope. Yeah. Right. And then the last question, uh, what is your soul food? My soul food, I think, I'm thinking back to a German potato salad Ooh. that my mom would make. What, 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 what goes into it? Equal portions of, say, a cup of each of water, vinegar, and sugar. Okay. Sugar. They were expecting that one. Right. So say it's in a, it's in a, so yeah, so it'd be more of a German potato salad. So it's not a mayonnaise potato salad or, or typically vinegar right. potato salad. So there's the sugar in there. And if you put that in the frying pan, before that, you would have fried up bacon. Right. Right. So you still have some kind of the bacon fat yeah. rendering. So you might kind of take off, put in a cup on the side. Save it, and as yeah. you're mixing the rest of it, Oof. so the water, the vinegar, the sugar, Maybe thickening it some with some flour. Although I can never get that right. It's always lumpy and I'm like, Mom, how, how did this happen? It's probably like I need to do that beforehand and not right. just put the sugar in there. But you, now that I'm thinking about it, that's probably right. Uh, and then and then in the mixing of that, you're, you're adding. So there's still some of the, the bacon stuff at the, at the bottom of the pan. Vinegar's taking care of that. And then you kind of add some of the, uh, the, the bacon renderings or the fat that kind of uh, adds then the bacon taste to that. You've already got the potatoes sliced up, onions, and raw onions, and then you kind of put all that sauce over it and mix it all together. I, I like just it. had lunch, but now I'm right. hungry. No. I prefer cold, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, you know, because there's a question, I think one of the baking shows on TV or cooking shows, okay. they say, What's your, what, what would be your favorite bite? And I thought about that, and I, and I figured my mom's German potato salad might be my favorite Ooh. bite if it's kind of on a plate with the bratwurst or something, right? So that would be, it's probably all like, you know, ridiculously unhealthy or yeah, something. But, no, but, but once in a while, food, if, yeah. that's, if that's your question, what's my, what's my uh, soul food? And the other thing is, so my wife is uh, from Ireland. Okay. And great comfort food that they have there. So I guess probably an Irish soul food, uh, shepherd's pie. Yes, yes, uh, yes. That's really good on any kind of a day, rainy day, cold day. You got your meat, you uh, got your grains, you, it's oh, yeah, you got your, your potatoes, you, and you can you can you mix it with with whatever, and so and with uh, uh, the Irish soda bread. Those are their 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 soul foods. They're they'd be my favorite bites. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely yes, wonderful, and I'm hungry too. I, yeah, I, I haven't yeah. had any lunch, so it's <laughs> oh well. well you, right. you, that's you why I eat these cookies on the table, right? <laughs> well, listeners, we we uh, I encourage you to uh, find Roger Roger Thoreau on social media, especially if you're interested in global everything from global food to global global agriculture to malnutrition to all these different fields. And Roger, thank you so much for the time and for uh, sharing quite a long time in the field and years of insight with us and uh, we hope you inspire some young people everywhere well thank you and so we have a lot on the on the Chicago Council webpage and my particular page kind of in the council complex if you want to give your Twitter, Twitter is, handle, that's yeah it. so my the website is outrageandinspire.org okay Twitter is just Roger Thorough uh, so there's some podcasts that we did that were uh, just 10 that you're much more proficient on this <laughs> I need some lessons so they're they're there kind of building this curriculum with, with like uh, uh, some professors at Auburn uh, uh, University. Uh, and then my th the three books on on hunger in the 21st century, different aspects of it, uh, which I call the real hunger. The real hunger. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that is something that it's not a dystopian world. It's it's this yes. is hunger in our midst. And it is, you know, for everybody who read the, the other Hunger Games mm -hmm. trilogy, mm -hmm. this is the real world. This is our great challenge going forward. I think the supreme challenge of all of us of conquering hunger and malnutrition and basically saying, yeah, no more. We're not going to tolerate or abide this anymore. So yeah. anyway, end of commercial in order. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, perfect. Thank you. Outrageandinspired.org. That's, that's everyone check it out. And again, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. All right, so welcome back, listeners. That, again, was Roger Thoreau. Really, really insightful. A lot of years in the field doing global work. And, yeah, so what did you all think? <laughs> and now I feel like I'm a professional German potato salad <laughs> chef. I'm ready to Just make it. Just from listening to oh, yeah. him. Wait, first, first takeaway. Chris, I have a question. When you have to blow your nose, what do you use? 
Oh. <laughs> what do you use? I use a tissue. A, t- a what? <laughs> yeah. I, I just, every <laughs> time you said the word issue. I, <laughs> my friend Katia will love that this is happening now because she texted me when she listened to episode one and said, I'm so glad you're doing this. Now I get to laugh at you every time I hear you say the word issue. <laughs> it's it's adorable. I, I, okay, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Didn't take away from the content. Of the episode, <laughs> uh, no, that was super interesting. So I think, um, so one of my, one of the things that stood out to me was him talking, he talked a lot about the first thousand days of a child's life and how he's he he thinks a lot about getting children off to a good start because children obviously are our future right but he mentioned something that you that means you also have to think about maternal nutrition not just when a mother is breastfeeding or is pregnant but he talked about paying attention to the nutrition of mothers when they start entering childbearing age yeah so even though the focus is on the first thousand days like really improving nutrition I think it's it's easy to focus on children because of that. Well, this is the first thousand days are really important for development, but it is true that the like the health of the mother, the nutritional status of women is really important, even like years before you're even pregnant. Uh, so when we talk about making new, I mean, it would be easy to focus on just kind of a specific vulnerable part of the population, which are newborns, but but really. The, it, the conversation has to always be broader than that because, um, you know, you also have role modeling from people who are older in your family. Um, healthy eating habits and access to good, healthy food is is really a systems wide thing. Even though he focuses on a thousand, the first thousand days, it's it's not really the first thousand days that are important to supporting the health of a child. Right. Especially in global health. I feel like we operate in this resource constrained setting such that whatever the big thing is in the field in the moment, resources and investment comes in windfalls. So yeah, the first thousand days tra- is really big mm-hmm. right now, right? Right. So, But that does raise a question. The, is all the much needed, necessary, and never enough investment in that area, does that ever come at an extent, at a detriment to other life core stages, other early adolescence and childbearing age for young women. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it, it raises that question. And it's a very, it's a difficult question. And when you're a policymaker making those decisions or an investor or a researcher or a grant. Who has limited yeah. attention. And right, right. if you're shining the light on one thing, then like what's in the shadow? Yeah, absolutely. I like that. Wow. I, I like it a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Do you want to be our next guest actually? <laughs> <laughs> um. And one other thing I thought about was he, he he really was passionate about this being a human rights struggle. Like, what might these children have accomplished if they weren't stunted, if they didn't have these developmental complications from being malnourished when they were young? Um, but that kind of relates to any human rights struggle. I mean, I think about this country, and when you think about, um, like, slavery, it's not just, you know, there's the, there's the numbers um, of the number of slaves that were here, but also like who, how many doctors and professionals were yeah. lost in that and, and putting kind of that face on any kind of human rights struggle you have. And he talks about malnutrition in other countries, but you can kind of frame, you can, you can talk about gun violence and mass incarceration in this Absolutely. country in the same way. Like who, who are we losing when we, that opportunity cost is real. Ignore human rights issues. Yeah. One of my takeaways wasn't so much about, his research his work per se but it was just about his profession i mean this guy he spent 30 plus years as a reporter and you know he even said he's not a nutritionist he's not a doctor he's not a farmer but he tells stories and i think that's really important in whatever line of work you do like telling a story like that's his way of getting this information across so for the listeners out there don't feel like you have to have all these titles and accolades in order to make a difference in the food system or make a difference in you know local food economy sometimes just telling a story sharing a connection or you know just staying in your lane like mm-hmm. that's that's what you can do to advance a more just food system and to advance a more equitable system in general yep yeah absolutely well, that's another optimistic note from Adante to end us <laughs> out on. And I, I uh, want to thank again the Chicago Council and Roger and Roger Thoreau in particular for lending us a Zoom mic and being so willing to engage with us. And, yeah, and, absolutely. Thank you so much, yes. guys. Yeah, that's wonderful. And last thing, listeners, be sure to check us out. Our next 
episode is an interview with a wonderful guest, Dr. Jessica Fanzo, an amazing human and absolute titan in the fields of global nutrition, titan. global food security. I want to be called a titan. She's a veritable titan. I, I adore her. So really excited to release that interview and to share some more thoughts. And in the meantime, you can follow us on social media at Wage Podcasts on Twitter and share your feedback. Let us know what you think of the podcast so far. Share it with your friends, your family. We're available on all streaming platforms from Apple Podcasts to Google Podcasts to Spotify, Spotify to Stitcher to SoundCloud. We is everywhere, baby. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, follow us and share the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This is Chris. This is Allison. And this is Adante. We'll be back next time with more conversations around food because we all got to eat.